Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her new novel, Cages, Sylvia Torty writes, birds might reveal the secrets of communication. Ten years ago, Torty, a tropical biologist, current dean of the Honors College at University of Utah, began to have long, meandering conversations about communication with Franz Goller, another interdisciplinary thinker on the college faculty. Goller studies how birds learn songs. And uh, while speaking in uh, Goller's laboratory, Torty began to think about the parallels between bird communication and human communication. And she wondered, what enables us to learn and keep memories? Those are just some of the questions explored in this interesting new novel. We'll be talking with Sylvia Torty and Franz Goller from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City following the news. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Sylvia Torti is out with a new book. It's the winner of the Nicholas Schaffner Award for Music in Literature. Here's the synopsis. In a laboratory perched in the mountains, two neurologists are engaged in a bitter rivalry. Haunted by figures and events from their past, both men experiment on live songbirds in pursuit of their divergent aims. One to locate the source of memory, the other to study speech patterns in humans by manipulating a bird's ability to sing. When a young female assistant arrives and takes issue with their methods, their competition escalates as they vie for her romantic attention while defending their research. However, unlike their feathered captives, she refuses to be caged. This uh, novel uh, resulted from uh, long conversations between Sylvia Torti, who's the current dean of the Honors College, University of Utah, with uh, biologist Franz Goller, who studies how birds learn songs, and many other things about birds. And uh, we uh, bring in from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City, Sylvia Torti and uh, Franz uh, Goller. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad Thank to be you. here. We appreciate you uh, taking time to uh, be with us. We fill out uh, biographies here. Sylvia Torti is author previously of The Scorpion's Tale. Uh, she holds a Ph.D. in biology, is an adjunct professor in biology, as well as uh, current dean of Honors College at the uh, University of Utah. She completed a B.A. in uh, Earlham College and born and raised in Ohio to an Argentinian parent. She's traveled the world extensively and is fluent in English, Spanish, and Danish as past president of Writers to Work. And uh, Sylvia Torti, uh, also you're interested, I believe, in uh, interdisciplinary studies. Interested, as you say, uh, in your writing, to try to find places where disciplines intersect. Uh, so that's, uh, that's become an interest, I guess, on top of your, uh, of your travels and your science. Yes, yes, it, it is. Uh, and Franz Kohler is a professor of biology at the University of Utah. He studies behavioral physiology of sound production and song learning in birds. He's originally from Austria, and he's internationally recognized as a physiologist who's collaborated with scientists from Germany, Denmark, Argentina, and the USA. In addition to his appointment at the University of Utah Department of Biology, he's a member of the University of Utah Interdepartmental Program in Neuroscience, I guess also. Professor Goller, interested in interdisciplinary matters. Yes, indeed. And uh, biology teaches me more and more how layers are connected. And this is on top of that because we are going into fiction here. And it taught me about communication being rather difficult. Yeah, communication, uh, human communication, and Sylvia Torty connects this up with uh, bird communication. I want to mention here that uh, the book launch for Cages is Thursday, um, 7 p.m. at Tracy Aviary. Um, and uh, that's, Sylvia Torty, I guess, uh, very appropriate. 
Yes, and I'm really thankful to the aviary for allowing us to host the book launch there in collaboration with the King's English. And uh, two of my artist friends are going to be installing an art exhibit at the same time, a both sound and visual art exhibit for the book launch. So it should be a really interesting evening. So to, let me start with you, Sylvia Torti. Um, you say you began thinking about the issues that you treat in this book. Uh, in these conversations, I, I don't know how you got connected up with uh, Professor Goller, but uh, long, meandering conversations is, is how it's described. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I completed my Ph.D. here at the University of Utah, so I, I knew Franz, um, and uh, we worked in very different fields, and I was away from Salt Lake for a couple of years, and when I came back, I think we ended up talking at one of the biology social events, and I asked if I could come to his laboratory and see what he was doing. At that time, I was thinking about maybe trying to reinvent myself as a, a physiological ecologist and looking for maybe a laboratory that I could make into a home. And that's what began our, um, what I would say is collaboration. Uh, I didn't turn out that I was a great lab biologist, but the what was being studied in the lab was uh, extremely interesting to me. And so I spent a lot of time there and dug into the research and was you know, fortunate enough to have Franz and his team teach me about what they were working on. So Franz Goller, uh, there are more than 30 million birders in, you know, in, in this country alone. That's according to the Cornell Institute of Ornithology. Um, just, you know, apart from delving into some of the scientific uh, things that you study, people are interested in birds. Yes, indeed. It's probably the one uh, group of animals that... Um, enjoys the greatest attention from people. It's it's a great hobby, actually, so I, I'm a little bit of a birder myself, so I understand. So what, what, what is it about uh, birds? You know, people are interested in all kinds of animals, but especially birds. Um, yeah, that I can't answer, what makes uh, every individual tick. It's, it's a little bit of fulfilling the hunting instinct, showing, uh, seeing new birds, and uh, of course, they are very beautiful, they sing, they have uh, beautiful voices, um, and there's a long tradition coming uh, from England, I guess, uh, initially, where birding was picked up as a hobby early on, and amateur scientists have pursued birds for a long time. Uh, Sylvia Torti, what, uh, what, what do you think about that? So, uh, why the fascination with birds? Well, interesting. I had never thought about the hunting instinct as far as being birders, but I think that there's just something inherently fascinating, almost um, mystical about birds. They fly. They move around the world in ways that we cannot, and um, they're they're rather friendly to humans. And so it, whether you're in Africa or South America or Europe, um, there are many birds that accustom themselves to spending time around humans. And so I think our natural innate curiosity takes hold of us when we're in these spaces with other animals and um, but yet they're not domesticated for the most part and so there's a little bit something wild and um, and something we can't quite understand about them that word domestication that they're not domesticated in the way that I guess dogs or cats are that gets us to the I guess uh, in part to the title of your novel cages in order to study birds you gotta gotta cage them yes <laughs> indeed it's an irony um, so, um, one uh, particular aspect of birds is, is the communication, right? And, and uh, at least one of the scientists in your novel is, he's trying to uh, 
draw analogies, trying to study human communication from bird communication, right? Yeah, this is what I found so fascinating when I was um, or spending time in the lab in the beginning, that birds are much like humans in that they have to learn their bird song and they have to do it when they're young. They have to hear the song of an adult male during a really critical period of their life. And then they babble, much like human babies babble, birds babble for a while until they finally learn the ability to make the sounds that they make. And they, they make those sounds for the rest of their lives. Uh, some birds can learn new songs over their entire lifespan, and other birds learn one song and sing that song forevermore. Um, but this is the research that Franz is involved in. I just thought that was the parallels with humans and how we acquire language was so so interesting. So uh, Franz Kohler, what drew you to this particular area of, of science? It is fascinating, the, the actual physical mechanisms, right? But how birds uh, learn to, to sing. Uh, well, I started early uh, uh, studying bird song in the field, trying to figure out what birds say to each other, and I studied a particular species of titmouse uh, for my master's degree. Then I shifted to learn physiology, and at some point it was opportunistic that a position opened in a bird song lab where I could combine my uh, expertise in behavior and physiological techniques to uh, begin to study the vocal organ of birds and how the brain controls various aspects of sound, like, for instance, the frequency of sound. So some of the questions you ask, uh, how do birds learn to sing, right? And it's, it, um, so Sylvia Tardy just, just mentioned it. Uh, the, so you're saying the physical mechanism, but the, but the interaction of this is uh, birds, just like humans, learn, learn their songs? Yes, and I, I would like to uh, qualify this slightly. There are three groups of birds uh, that have to learn their songs very much like human infants pick up speech, whereas other groups of birds like chickens or hawks or owls uh, do not uh, require this acquisition after birth. Um, so they don't have to learn anything. It will develop uh, innately, as it's called, or, or it's genetically encoded, whereas these uh, three groups, songbirds, uh, parrots, of course, and some hummingbirds are known to have to uh, learn after they hatch uh, what their species' typical sounds uh, uh, are like and then try to imitate them. Mm. And birds, I guess, uh, they need, just like humans, I guess uh, some birds, like humans, need auditory feedback. In fact, Sylvia Torti, um, two of the sections in your book are called Auditory Feedback. Right, and I'm using that much as a metaphor that we, in order to um, continue to be able to communicate, right, we need to hear ourselves or know ourselves. But Franz can speak to the, the science about that, which is really fascinating, um, this auditory feedback. Yeah, uh, Professor Goller, um, and apparently, I guess uh, some birds, like humans, if we, if we lose our hearing, then we also lose the speech. Yeah, it degrades slowly depending on age. The older we are, the more slowly speech will degrade if we lose uh, auditory feedback, that's, uh, that's to say hearing. And the same is true in, in songbirds. Um, and this whole... Um, methodology of getting them to stutter came from a, a, uh, an attempt in my lab where we tried to take auditory feedback away from adult zebra finches 
by muting them. So we were able to develop a technique where the bird still attempted to sing, but no sound came out. And within days, they started to change the output, which we measured through their respiratory effort, um, and could see that they began to stutter. And that was, at the time, the fastest induction of a change by taking away auditory feedback. Now, do they then, if you restore that, do they regain speech? They do. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Well, in in the meantime, I'm just curious, what uh, what happens socially with the uh, with the other birds, or the you know the ones that are muted um, and begin to stutter? Yes. So, in a in a laboratory environment, we 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 don't get a good uh, uh, insight into that because the birds, in order to be able to uh, do physiological measurements, are isolated in their own cage. They don't interact with birds in their normal social groups. So so we actually don't know. Okay. D- does this ever happen naturally in the wild? Uh, uh, a bird loses its uh, auditory feedback? and Unlikely, I mm-hmm. would say. Uh, I mean, I, I could imagine there are temporary infections that uh, would lead to that, but nothing is known, uh, at least to my knowledge, about uh, any effects like that. And if it were restored uh, quickly, I'm sure uh, it would be a minor event. Uh, But what does happen in the wild is that some birds sing strange songs for their environment. And uh, interestingly, um, you know, we know a little bit how one species, the white-crowned sparrow, uh, how females react to strange songs. Where where did they get the strange songs? It's just they just start since singing the quote unquote wrong song. Since it's learned, uh, one could imagine that they picked it up at some point, um, either from the wrong species through some kind of uh, random event, or they might have moved around and learned it in the wrong geographic region because some birds have dialects like humans have hmm. accents and dialects uh, because of this learning. And so I assume these may be uh, foreign guys with cute accents yeah. or something like <laughs> right. that. <laughs> could could oh, and it could be an advantage, right? That's you know in the humans it is sometimes. But, it it uh, could, but yeah. it's usually held against them. And, yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing is in this white-crowned sparrow, there are two studies where females were tested, and in the sedentary, if I get this right, if in the sedentary population, the guys with accents were not welcome. But in the mountain populations that migrate, uh, this was more acceptable. Mm. And uh, before I turn to the parallels with humans, uh, so Franz Goller, um, birds apparently do have accents, you know, quote unquote. Uh, it's Sylvia Tordy in, the, in your in your novel, uh, uh, one of your characters, David, he's able to tell a, a bird that's been to Costa Rica versus one that's been to you know somewhere else. That's correct. And, you know, the really excellent birders don't just recognize birds by their their color patterns and what they look like, but actually use sound and song. Um, Each species has its own specific song, but then individual birds differ. Very hard for humans to hear that. But nonetheless, a well-trained ear, much like um, David and his friend Ed in the novel, can hear uh, birds that have migrated to the tropics. Mockingbirds, for example, pick up songs 
throughout their entire lives. And those that migrate to Costa Rica in the winter, our winter, um, can sometimes pick up songs of other birds um, there, and then they bring those back here. So you can kind of get a sense, if you're very good at birding, of where the birds migrated to. So, Sylvia Tardy, as Franz Guller was speaking, fascinating science, uh, my mind was going to parallels, you know, the analogies to humans. That's where you go in, in, in the novel. Um, you, the characters in the novel are navigating relationships, naviga- navigating auditory feedback in relationship context. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, right. Your mind naturally went there because it is com- very fascinating how, you know, this study of the birds is is really, you know, thinking about ourselves and how we acquire language and communicate. And for me, it's a it's still a complete unknown. You know, how do we actually enc- learn to encode these words, these sounds that I'm saying so that you can understand what I'm saying? Listeners uh, can understand what I'm saying. How does that happen? And how does uh, how do we understand the nuance? of language, and then beyond that, how do we communicate with other human beings in these deepest of ways, which of course, um, I'm thinking about, you know, love affairs and relationships that we have throughout our lives. I mean, it's it's mysterious. Uh, yeah, it is mysterious. And I don't know, how much of how much of science do you think that you might think is is just, you know, pure, just pure science that wanting to curiosity about another species, how much of that do you think is is always comes back to us humans working out our curiosities and issues. Well, uh, Franz might answer that differently than I do, but I would say that uh, scientists in general, if I'm going to make a broad generalization about scientists, are you know very curious about the world and they they what they end up studying. Uh, most always, if they dug deep into themselves, would find some resonance with their own lives and their own worries and their own unconscious um, issues and sometimes conscious issues. Um, that's my kind of short psychoanalysis of, of scientists. I'm not sure a lot of scientists spend a lot of time in that space thinking about the parallels in their personal lives and their inner lives with their work. But um, we could certainly ask Franz if that's something yeah, he ever gets let's, thought to. Let's do. Let's do ask Franz to put himself on the couch. Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> what do you? Especially having you know uh, worked uh, these conversations with Sylvia Torti and uh, the novels based on a, a, you know a lot of those conversations. What? What do you think about that question? Well, what, what I learned uh, in part through the novel and the conversations is that uh, the way we are perceived through our communication may differ very much from the way we think we should be. Uh, so in that regard, I've learned a lot just uh, from thinking about this. But I had a colleague who studied orientation and navigation in birds, and he jokingly said to me, you know, I'm always lost, so that's why I'm studying it in birds. <laughs> uh, it didn't help him. And uh, so I can't help but think sometimes that um, maybe I'm not able to communicate effectively with other human beings. Maybe that's why I try to figure it out in birds. Yeah. And uh, Sylvia Torti, uh, your, your characters are working through this, right? Uh, David, is, a girlfriend early in the novel tells him that, uh, that she feels like he, he has trouble communicating. Right, exactly. And each of the characters has um, a different kind of trouble. David, um, you know, her, his wife has left. He's he, She's gone. We don't exactly know why, but she's criticized him in the past for not having the facility of, to communicate. And um, much of the novel, from his perspective, then is learning maybe how to do that for himself. But um, he's communicating all the time, really, with her. And uh, one of the 
themes I was exploring in the novel is the ways in which our relationships stay with us even when we're not physically with other people. And so while there are three people in a laboratory studying birdsong, each of them is working out relationships from their past and continuing conversations in their heads. And I'm just interested in this way that sometimes the conversations we're having in real time are influenced by relationships that may be in the past. That gets us into memory. Let's take a break. I want to talk about uh, memory. Fascinating theme in, in the novel. Uh, one of the researchers is is using birds to to study memory, right? Um, and uh, we are talking about uh, Sylvia Torti's new novel. It's called Cages. The book launch is Thursday evening, 7 p.m. at the Tracy Aviary. And we're talking with uh, Sylvia Torti, who is current dean of the uh, Honors College at University of Utah, and with Franz Goller, who's a biologist at the uh, University of Utah. They're joining us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks KCPW. More following this break. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A very interesting new novel is out, Cages. It's a novel by Sylvia Torti, and uh, it is the winner of the Nicholas Schaffner Award for Music in Literature. Sylvia Torti is author previously of The Scorpion's Tale. She is uh, dean of the Honors College at University of Utah. Uh, we're also uh, joined from KCBW Studios uh, this hour by Franz Goller. Um, he is a biologist at uh, University of uh, Utah, and uh, this uh, novel is uh, based on, at least initiated by some uh, long conversations that Sylvia Torty had with pro- uh, pro- uh, Professor Goller. Uh, he uh, studies behavioral physiology of sound production and song learning in birds. And uh, we're talking about uh, Cages, the novel on the program today. You can join the conversation if you'd like at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, search for upraxcess, and on Twitter as well, at upraxcess. I want to mention that the book launch for Cages is at Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City, Thursday evening at 7 uh, p.m. Sylvia Tardy, I mentioned again, what's, uh, there's going to be some art happening as well? 
a, an interdisciplinary collaborative called Mapping Meaning, and one of the visual artists, Krista Caballero, is uh, working with Frank Ekberg, who's a sound artist from Norway, and they've been working on a series that have to do with birds and extinction for a number of years, and they've done this exhibit that includes both sound and visuals in Dubai and Australia and D.C. and Norway, but they became interested in my novel, and the three of us collaborated on a new series for them called Lab Birds. So they spent some time in Franz's lab just after Christmas, and they've produced um, some installations. I have not seen or heard them yet, but they'll be arriving here in Salt Lake and installing for the book launch on Thursday. Tell us just parenthetically briefly, uh, tell us a little bit more about Mapping Meaning. Mapping Meaning is a collective that was founded by Krista Caballero. It uh, came out of her master's work. Uh, she's been very interested in questions of ecology and the West and who gets to map spaces and map them both physically but also psychologically and socially. And she had found a really arresting picture from an all-female survey crew from 1918 that was taken in Boise. She found this, or in, in Idaho, I should say. She found uh, this photo in the archives and noticed that the the survey rods that the women were using had hearts carved on them. And so this started her thinking about bringing a, a group of women together to ask questions about mental, social, and ecological uh, ecology in the West. And she founded her first um, workshop in 2010. And then I came on as co-director in 2012. And we've been holding workshops every two years in the American West. And we have women coming from all over the world to participate. So we have scientists and artists and humanists, and we create a theme and we discuss it and look at it from different perspectives. Very interesting. I want to get into a discussion of uh, memory. This is very interesting. Uh, Sylvia Tarty, uh, in the book, you have uh, your character, the, the, the uh, professor David, musing on. He's, he's hit kind of hard times after a long period of, of success, in, at least financially, getting a lot of grants. And he's looking back on, and he says, uh, how did the decade of the brain go by so quickly. And the uh, funds are drying up a little bit, at, at least at this point, the beginning of the novel. So, uh, the and, and you you write, interestingly, about this uh, decade of the brain, the, the fact that scientists went to Congress, went to other sources of funding, and said, uh, look, we can, we can map the brain um, in the same way that you map a uh, you know, geographic territory. And, the, the, and this way, we're going to get a lot closer to solutions for Alzheimer's and, you know, a lot of other things. Yeah. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in the early 1990s. Um, scientists, a large group of them, went to Congress and President Bush of the time signed the Decade of the Brain. And so there were a lot of resources that were put into the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation in order to start to try to uncover the brain. Um, because at that point, many people thought of it as, you know, the black box. We really didn't understand too much of how it functions, and we understand much more today. But 
you know, scientists are entrepreneurial, and when um, you can redefine yourself as a neuroscientist and suddenly uh, you have access to more research funds, then, you know, the number of neuroscientists in the world went from, I don't know, 2,000 to 30,000 in a, in a or short order. Um, but we have made great strides, and, um, you know, the decade of the brain came and went, um, but there's still many people studying these questions. And one of the fascinating questions is, can we find the, you know, actual physical imprint on the neurons or whatever it is of memory, right? And there's a lot of, there's debate in the novel about memory engrams. Right. And I mean, this is just when you think about it, how is it that we remember anything, and particularly memories from our childhood? I mean, where are all these things stored? Is it is it you know, we could think about it as a photograph that you that you develop and there it is and it's there. But uh, in fact, that's not the way we think it works. Um, I will let Franz speak to the science of memory, but but it is just a fascinating question. And in the novel, of course, the, the characters are arguing whether there is a, a physical imprint, uh, which they're calling the engram, which is based on an actual science paper. The word was tr- uh, coined in the early 20s, I believe. And um, or, or was it something else? And and so David, the lab head, is saying, you know, you'll never find memory. It's, it's, it's this complicated process and interaction, and um, you're never going to actually quote-unquote see it, whereas the Anton, the other character, is intent on finding its physicality. Yeah, so let me let me have uh, Franz Goller speak to that. The, the, the debate is in the novel, uh, and I'm sure it reflects debate that goes on, is it a physical place or, or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, indeed, it, it does reflect uh, scientists' uh, various hypotheses of, about how memory uh, <clears throat> is first established and then how it can be recalled. And basically, we are struggling to find the place in the brain, for instance, where these song memories are established that then later lead to the formation of this individual's own song. So at some point, it has to establish this memory of song by hearing it conspecific. And then it babbles and compares its output to that stored uh, memory and we do the same thing in speech, right? We have um, acquired as as infants a memory of speech sounds, and then we try to imitate them. And the question is in this specific field, but not unlike other uh, memories in in other neurobiological questions and behaviors. The question has been: Is there a physical location where this memory is stored? And if so, how is it stored? And basically, uh, um, the insight from decades of research is that most likely memories are stored by modifications of connections between neurons. We call them synapses. Uh, uh, Plastic in the sense that they can be shaped by input. Yeah, it's it's a very attractive idea. You could actually touch a memory, right, if you... In, in theory, yes. But uh, the, what we've learned in many systems, including the birdsong system, it, it may not be just uh, connections between neurons in one specific location of the brain. For some memories, that may be true. But what we learn more and more is that uh, it seems to be distributed across the brain. And that makes it, of course, very complicated for us because we are, uh, approach this often in sort of an engineering or computer uh, uh, design mode mindset 
that we think, okay, here is my hard drive and that's where my memories are stored, right? And it, in the brain, it doesn't seem to work exactly like this. Mm. It's often distributed. And furthermore, research is complicated by um, the approaches we use because we always have to discern between recall of memory and the actual formation of memory. Mm. And to dissect those two apart is, is pretty difficult yeah. in many cases. Very complicated. Uh, so when you, when you work with muting uh, birds and I guess restoring, the, you, know, you, you disrupt that auditory feedback they go to stuttering, uh, then it's re restored. You're, you're, in part, you're getting at memory, right? What, what the bird's recalling? Indirectly, because the, the question is, if then they are restored to being able to produce sound, uh, will they go back to the old memory? Uh, and the, the question in the field is also, is that original memory that was established um, uh, during the bird's youth is that still there, or does it get modified as the bird uh, produces its own song and thus makes sort of a, a memory copy, a motor memory copy of its song? Uh, are those two uh, present at the same time in the brain, or does one get modified into the second? That those are all still fairly uh, unsolved uh, questions. And so by muting, you, you, we thought we could get at this, um, but we also haven't cracked the nut. Hmm. So tell Sylvia Tortia, again, the parallels are very interesting. You explore these in, in, in the book. Um, the, the characters, um, have, they'll be going about their days, and, uh, and a memory will intrude, right? And, it's, and you explore how memory affects us and, and how we interact with, with our memories. Yeah, again, yeah, I think that that's something that um, I've been thinking a lot about in the last few years, and I don't think we talk a lot about it because we're, we're having the conversations we're having in real time, but in fact, we are the sum of all of our experiences as well as our memories, um, sometimes accurate, sometimes faulty, sometimes we've changed our memories, but nonetheless, we're carrying all of this with us in our lives, in our work, in our relationships, and all of that is affecting our, you know, moments that we live and that's just fascinating because of, I think in some ways it's probably happening mostly unconsciously so I was bringing some of that to the forefront and trying to think about it consciously for these characters you brought up something interesting uh, memories that may not be totally accurate but memories that we change over time right Right. I mean, sort of what Franz was talking about with the copies of birdsong, you know, is there that one memory and then the bird keeps relating to that song? Or is there a copy made of a copy made of a copy? And um, from the bit of research I've done, it seems, in fact, that um, we are constantly recreating our memories. So every time we recall a human memory, we're creating it anew to some degree. And so our memories change over time. You can uh, do interviews with people and ask them what happened. And then over the course of their lives, that memory changes and they believe, we believe that what we're remembering is absolutely 100% accurate, but in fact, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Franz Kohler, why do birds sing? That's a big question. And then, you know, the, I guess the, the number one bullet point would be that, that we would think of is to attract a mate. And that is generally uh, the, the main reason. Um, it's typically during reproductive context, so when they uh, start breeding, 
and it's also used to fend off uh, competitors. Many birds, at least in our area, establish territories, and they defend this territory against neighbors throughout the breeding season, and song plays an important role in that because they can leave the acoustic signature and the neighbors know that this guy is still there and if they've had a physical battle over a border, they will not uh, uh, challenge uh, again. But that also means that they have to know each other individually by song, and interestingly, they do. In most species, I, I, I gather it's the male that sings, female that listens. It's uh, generally true, but we find more and more that females may sing at times in many species, and typically during different uh, contexts. So one that comes to mind is that some females sing when the young fledge, for example, and the young may learn from both in some species. And then you have uh, different ecological situations, like in the tropics, um, many wren species will duet, so the female sings as much almost as the male. So it spans the whole range from not singing at all, like in the zebra finch, the uh, one bird that, that is described in the novel, where females never sing, to some song occasionally, to as much song in the female as you find in the male in other species. So with the zebra finch, for example, the male is singing. Uh, he's trying to attract a, a mate. What's what's going on with the, the female? What's she listening for? The accuracy of the song, the way the song's supposed to be? What what what, what, what attracts her? Tom, that's the million-dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have some insight in the zebra finch, but we are still uh, far away from a full understanding. Um, so what we do know is that, for instance, females prefer stereotyped songs. So the male will repeat a set of five different sounds in very stereotyped fashion, both in temporal pattern and in acoustic structure, uh, for the rest of his adult life. And females seem to prefer uh, stereotypy in this case. Hmm. Um, consistency, consistency, dependability, all the things we look for. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this, this is taking me back to high school. Um, <laughs> we can make a human <laughs> parallel. Do, uh, you know, just parenthetically, I, I don't know whether, uh, you know, the female zebra finch goes through her motorcycle guy phase, you know, where, <laughs> where, where she's looking for the rebel and then she settles down with the dependable one. That's we, right. we could make that a research project yeah, yeah, if yeah. you have some time. Yeah, let's, let's get a grant for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, good luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Sylvia Torti, um, the, there's parallels within these characters, right? There's David, uh, who's a professor. Rebecca is the lab assistant. Anton, a, a postdoc from, uh, from, I guess, northern Italy. Mm-hmm. He speaks German and Italian and uh, some other languages. Um, and, she, and at least early on, Rebecca is described as being uh, kind of quiet, right? There's some parallels between what we've been talking about. Uh, and this is, this is, I guess, you know, one of the things that attracts these two men to her yeah so she is quiet she's um she's not as uh, verbally adept as as she'd like to be perhaps and um she's also an observer she's a person who really likes to watch and look and um doesn't doesn't need to be talking all the time um and i think that certainly the two men are attracted to her in in, in different for different reasons in different ways um and you know in some 
fashion, I suppose you could imagine her as one of the female birds in a very simplistic fashion, you know, where she's presumed to not be participating in the uh, courtship to the same degree as the men are. But of course, we know that it's a it's two to tango, right? So, yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly is. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, more on Cages. It's the new novel by Sylvia Torti. We have her with us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. We also have Franz Kohler, who's a biologist at uh, University of uh, Utah, and uh, he studies um, how birds learn songs, the physical mechanisms, motor coordination, energy involved, such questions uh, as how do birds learn to sing, what allows uh, birds to remember complicated songs. And uh, we're talking about uh, bird song. How Birds Learn to Sing, and also parallels to uh, to humans. Cages is a winner of the Nicholas Schaffner Award for Music and Literature, and the book launch is in Salt Lake City uh, Thursday evening, 7 o'clock at Tracy Aviary. More following this break. Almost as far the story of a serial killer. I've killed before, and I'll kill again. Many deputies standing by. His righteous lawyer. People saying, how can you live with yourself? Gabby subversion of the law and of justice. Bodies used as pawns in a game of law. And a dangerous secret that set a precedent. The conflict between what a good lawyer should do and what a good person should do. That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Robin Young. There are apps to hook you up for dinners cooked by strangers. But why would you host a dinner party for people you've never met? I genuinely, honestly believe that there's goodness in humanity and there's a lot of love in people's hearts. So when I open the doors uh, with that conviction, I haven't been let down ever. Next time, Here and Now. Join us for Hour 2 of Here and Now today at noon on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and I'm joined uh, from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City by Sylvia Torti, who is the Dean of the College of Honors at University of uh, Utah, and by Franz Goller, who is a biologist, professor of biology at the uh, University of Utah. Cages, the new novel from uh, Sylvia Torti, is uh, based on uh, conversations between Sylvia Torti and Franz Goller. And uh, they're joining us from KCPW in Salt Lake City. The book launch for Cages is at Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City, Thursday evening, 7 o'clock. And uh, everyone is invited to that. Cages is uh, is out now. Um, so, uh, Sylvia Torti, um, one of the issues in the book is is scientific ethics, right? Uh, Rebecca, I believe, in the, in the book comes to be troubled by by the the methods by which the the scientific knowledge is being gleaned from the birds yeah with um you know one of the things that i again spending time in franz's lab that seemed really salient to me was this uh question of you know what can we understand through the scientific process what we can't we and what should we do and what should we perhaps not do and so through these characters i'm exploring three different viewpoints on um, the ethics of doing research with animals and it's certainly not black and white i don't think there's a right or a wrong although i'm sure many people would argue with me on that and uh, my own thoughts are very not very formed still even after writing the novel so i really wanted to explore different ways of thinking about our relationships with other animals and um and then the questions of science 
So, Franz Kohler, I'm sure you've thought about a lot about this. I'm sure there are you know rules in place and debates that go on. But uh, for example, studying birds um, in in the novel, uh, the birds, of course, are caged. They're um, they're anesthetized. Electrodes put on their brains. Um, you know, all, all of these things in order to to study the birds. Yes, of course, I've um, thought hard about this, and uh, we we constantly have to ask ourselves the question, is this justified? What are we uh, gaining in terms of insight, and um, are we allowed to do this to another animal? And certainly, I've come to terms uh, with this type of research for myself, but I understand that many other people wouldn't agree with that at all. Uh, so I guess the, the ethical guidelines in place, but uh, so for you, I guess the, the calculation is the, the science is, is worth the, I guess, what the, what the birds are put through. Uh, yes, I, I would argue that uh, this is basic science. We are not exactly um, in a field where we can claim we'll cure some kind of uh, neurological disease tomorrow with, with our research. But as basic research goes, we are creating a pool of knowledge that might or might not come in uh, useful for uh, cures for various human and animal uh, diseases. But um, as such, basic research is important. And nobody knows which uh, information that we gain through these animal experiments will become useful. So uh, the, the larger the pool, of course, the greater the chance that we uh, will be able to help people as well. And in general, I always think that we all take advantage of this every day of our lives, right? Uh, this has been going on for uh, decades. Um, and every single one is benefiting from this. So, Vittori, you said you don't quite know where your thinking has come, but maybe give us the parameters of your of your thinking on this issue. Yeah, I think, um, so I, I don't come down on the side of being completely anti-animal research. Um, I came to understand that I didn't particularly enjoy it myself, um, but I don't think that it's uh, right, wrong, let's say, as that we shouldn't be doing it. And in fact, I should say that much of Franz's research was funded by the National Institutes of Health and on their deafness panel, because there are questions that we uh, are not willing to ask uh, about humans, but we would like to help humans who suffer deafness or other kind of auditory problems. And birds have been the model system for that. You know, learned communication in animals is rare. Humans do it. Birds do it. Uh, maybe elephants, whales, bats, but they're all much more difficult to study. So birds have uh, been the system. And um, at the same time, I think it's really complicated. Um, you know, there's a power differential. We as humans have the technology and the ability to put another animal into a space and um, manipulate them and they don't get to choose. Hmm. Franz Kohler, uh, so uh, I want to explore this parallel a little more. So the application to humans with regard to deafness uh, is obvious, you know, muting in, in, in birds. Uh, maybe you could expand a little bit on that. What, what are we hoping to learn that would, would help us with regard to deafness and communication? 
Well, uh, one thing that became clear from uh, brain studies is that although the bird brain is organized differently from the mammalian brain, and thus the human brain, that this learned vocal communication processing and, and control involves a similar set of brain areas um, in birds and in, in humans. So the way nature came up with this uh, neural control of, of learned vocal behavior seems to have been paralleled in, in, in the two um, uh, animal groups. And, and so since we, we, we can't uh, do any manipulative studies in humans, birdsong uh, has become the model system to sort of replace this. And because of these parallels in brain control mechanisms, uh, the idea was that we would learn a lot about speech uh, problems from these studies. Mm. And uh, after decades of research, we've learned some, but um, this is a long process. Mm. So, Vitardi, we uh, just have about uh, five minutes left in the conversation. I want to return to the title of the novel, Cages, the many, many metaphors from that, right, including perhaps we put ourselves in cages. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the title came late in writing the novel, and um, and one can certainly think about that. I think that, um, you know, I, there isn't one simplistic reason for that title, and the metaphors um, are kind of obvious. But yes, of course, we we all put ourselves in cages all of the time, right? We, we make decisions that limit us. We... Um, we take on beliefs and um, agreements with ourselves and others that both put restrictions on us, but also allow us to perform uh, in the ways that we do. And so, cages, yes. Uh, there's a quote um, David muses early in the novel, the professor, songs of birds might be a proxy for love, which is a, which is a very attractive idea. Right, right. And I, you know, I think that birds, I mean, you know, they sing to attract mates and all of that. I think birds also sing. They like to hear themselves, you know. Um, that is not a scientific question. It's not one that we can ask with scientific means, but I certainly can ask it as a, a fiction writer, as a novelist, as a humanist. And so, um, you know, there is something about love and sound and just the, the beauty of, of these sounds that we're able to make either through music or song or singing. And, and I think David believes that. He won't actually admit that to anyone because it's not a scientific question, as I said. And so he's not going to ask it in public. Mm -hmm. So Franz Kohler, I'm, I'm curious about this. You're, you know, the, one interesting aspect of the, of the novel um, is you, you get a glimpse into a world that you, you know, if you're not a scientist, you don't live. So a life in the laboratory, a life, uh, in, um, you know, working in this, in this field. Is there, for lack of a better word, romance in that? Is the, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's drudgery, there's excitement of discovery, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a roller coaster ride. One day you think you found some breakthrough data set and then you scrutinize it uh, overnight, maybe even staying awake and working on it. And the next day you find the flaw in it and you're back down uh, very low and you go in for this again and again. So there's, there's a lot of excitement in the research laboratory. And of course, uh, it's a selective process. People who sort of have this bug 
of of seeking this excitement will pursue a career like that. Uh, and then there's a lot of uh, tedious hard work uh, at the same time, right? The, the people forget that it's not just all excitement. You ah. have to repeat <laughs> measurements time and again, thousands of times. And there are lots of setbacks setbacks as well and so yes it's it's sort of a roller coaster ride so you can I, you notice tom that he didn't answer your question of romance mm, yeah. and <laughs> I, I i certainly know that that's not a word franz would use but i would say absolutely and and the process that he just explained is much like the process of writing a novel or writing a fictional story you know you you have the pages you produce and you fall in love with your words and your work and the next day you look at it and maybe it wasn't as such as as great as you thought it was but there's absolutely romance in this type of work and uh, sometimes there's uh, you know out when you're out in the field at least there's excitement and danger I, I'm, I'm reading here uh, Sylvia Torti you were out doing uh, bird research and uh, in Mexico and the yes. Zapatista rebellion happened in Chiapas that's that appears in your first novel I think it does. That's the basis of the first novel, but I happened to be there. I was looking for a PhD project. It was my first uh, semester in graduate school, and so I um, connected to some folks from the Smithsonian, and I arrived, and the next morning I was in the middle of a rebellion. Um, and so that uh, was not where I did my PhD work, but it did become the backdrop of and what pushed me to begin fiction writing and to write my first novel. So I want to uh, close. We just have a couple minutes left, so about a minute each. So Franz Goller first. Uh, at the end here, this, this has kind of been these conversations anyway, and the resulting in this novel has kind of been an intersection between science and humanities. What, what have you uh, gained from that, do you think? Uh, I, I just uh, began to think harder about the many layers. We are, we are so engulfed and tunnel-visioned in our scientific world that we often forget uh, that this penetrates all layers of our lives. And I've learned a lot from this uh, interaction with Sylvia and the novel that we, we have to be aware that how we come across to people who work for us in, in laboratories, how we are not able to communicate despite thinking that we are effectively communicating. And so I've, I've learned lots about life from this process. So, Vitardi, we have about a minute left. The same question. What, what, what have you got from this intersection of science and humanities? Well, I would say the same thing. I've learned an awful lot about life. Um, for me, being able to approach the world from uh, the perspective of a scientist and use the tools that I learned uh, when I was studying that, as well as approach it from a more artistic or humanist perspective, um, I think that we're enriched by having multiple lens at which to ask questions and see the world, and certainly having a, a long uh, relationship with Franz and talking about communication over years has, you know, allowed me to learn a lot about the, the nuts and bolts of communication and memory, um, but also just to think about the very different ways, divergent ways that he and I approach the world, um, despite some similarities. Well, we're at the end of our time. We've been talking with Sylvia Torti, who is uh, Dean of the College of Honors at uh, University of Utah, and uh, Professor of Biology Franz Goller at University of uh, Utah. The uh, novel by Sylvia Torti is out now. It's called Cages, and 
The uh, book launch is Thursday evening, 7 p.m. at Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City. Uh, Sylvia Torti, Franz Goller, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And uh, thanks so much to the good folks at KCPW, where we have originated uh, this uh, program. Tomorrow, we're going to uh, dive into Margaret Atwood's uh, seminal novel, The Handmaid's Tale. It's out in uh, television now. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.